In this episode of So Dramatic, my guest is entrepreneur and businessman extraordinaire, Stephen Kent. I surprise Stephen and share with him the story of Thomas Kincaid, the painter of light. Stephen and I talk about our favorite paintings and what we love about them and how the truest expression of a human being is to create something. Welcome to So Dramatic. My guest is Stephen Kent. Thanks for doing this with me. This is early early days, so um, I appreciate you taking the the risk. <laughs> to put your, me. To put yourself out there. Is it? We'll see. You let me know how exciting it is when we're done. Okay. <laughs> Save that for later. You may be like, this is super boring. Okay. So the way this works, Steve, is I choose an artist based on who my guest is. I choose someone who I think that you would be interested in and would enjoy talking about. Okay. Yeah. So you don't know who it is. Do you have any guests? No, and I have. I've thought about that a lot. You have? Yeah, yeah. What were you thinking? Like, what was going through your head for you? Well, I, at first, I was trying to picture the genre. Was okay. it going to be a musician? Okay. Was it going to be a painter? Was it going to be a writer? Okay. Um, and I can't. I couldn't even narrow it down. Okay, because we talk a lot. You and I are both avid readers. Right. Um, so we talk a lot about books and things like that. Yeah. So yeah, so I can see where you you go along those lines. And we've been close friends for. 20 some odd years yeah. and so we know a lot about it yes yes okay so um are you ready i'm ready okay so stephen kent i have chosen to discuss with you thomas kincaid the painter of light okay <laughs> i wish we had a camera <laughs> because i'm seeing a look of utter disappointment <laughs> um no i'm i'm i wish you had a uh, like a, a reference picture so I can remember Thomas Kincaid. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, painter of light. So he's known for all those little cozy cottages. Oh, that's right. That's right. <laughs> okay. You, you know of, of what I'm speaking. Yeah. Lots of little cottages, mm -hmm. you know, that kind of stuff. So I'm going to talk to you about Thomas Kincaid. Okay. And again, as I you and I were talking earlier, it's not maybe necessarily someone who I even like their work or I am really you know like their them as a person but i just think that it's a great story okay and i think there's a lot to talk about with him okay okay all right so um he's known as the mass production master there was thomas kincaid galleries franchises furniture there was even like lazy boy furniture designed for him and just so you know it when he goes by tom it's not t-o-m it's t-h-o-m of course right which is interesting to me because I kind of think of his stuff as, you know, cheesy people from the South Side. Some of my family members that have like little <laughs> Thomas Kincaid yeah. hanging in their bathroom or wherever. Right. So to to be particular and somewhat affected in terms of how you spell your name, when that's how I think about it, it's just interesting. <laughs> right. Um, so they're like, who could have imagined that behind so many contented visions of peace, harmony, and nauseating goodness? Lay just another story of deception, disappointment, and depravity. Wow. Fueled by those ever ready Valium and alcohol. Nice. Now yeah. I like Thomas. Right, Kincaid. right. So there's a there's a good story. So yeah. if you're just looking at the, you know, the the cozy cottage, you, you don't get the whole story. So there was this book by um oh, so my sources, because I'm an English teacher, I have to always give my sources. So I use The Guardian, New York Times, Wikipedia, LA Times, and then years ago, 60 Minutes had a really good kind of retrospective about him and uh, his work. Is he work. still alive? No. Mm -mm. Okay, so I can say whatever I want. I won't ever get a phone call from his publicist I don't saying know. that I'm rude. I, <laughs> I think I'm going to try to pick most people who are dead. I think it will be better for all of us. Right. <laughs> uh, so this book is by um, Heath and Potter's book. It's called The Rebel Cell, Why the Culture Can't Be Jammed. It, they talk about Thomas Kincaid's work as so awful it must be seen to be believed. So he was basically a self-made phenomenon with his prints. Uh, according to his company, they said there was one of his paintings or prints hanging in one in 20 American homes. Wow. So at his height in 2001, they said he generated $130 million in sales. But I saw conflicting numbers, so we'll, we'll go with that, right? Who's going to 
anyone fact check me, you're, you have too much time on your hands. Um, so his paintings of cottages, lighthouses, gardens, gazebos, sold by the millions through this network of these Thomas Kincaid galleries that was owned by his company. Um, and then at their peak, they said between 1995 and 2000, there were 350 Kincaid franchises across the U.S., with most of them in California. Wow. Yeah. And so selling prints and things like that. Yes. Yes, all his stuff. And is having an original Thomas Kincaid a, a big deal? I think that's probably a bigger deal because there aren't there are f- few originals, okay. right? Most of what people have in their homes are a poster that someone painted on top of. Right. Thomas Kincaid was born in uh, on January nineteenth, nineteen fifty eight, Sacramento County, California. He grew up uh, in a place in Northern California and raised in like relative poverty with a single mother. He was really drawn to art as a young age. In June 1980, he spent the summer traveling across the United States with his friend. And the two of them ended up in New York. And they uh, basically got a contract to produce a sketching handbook. And it actually sold really well. It's called The Artist's Guide to Sketching. And it was really successful. He did really well with that. He goes back to University of California at Berkeley. And he's uh, before he moves to Hollywood, he um, paints backgrounds for this animated film called Fire and Ice. And while working on the film, he really gets kind of drawn to this, how do you paint light and these kind of imagined worlds. It's what That sort of influenced him. After that film, he started to earn his living as a painter, selling his originals in some galleries throughout California. He married Nanette Wiley in uh, 1982, and they had four daughters. Wow. Merritt, Chandler... Windsor and Everett, all named for famous artists. But that's if that's not enough reason right there to not. It's so pretentious, right? Yeah, I like it. He and his wife were married almost thirty years. They separated just before his death in two thousand twelve. So in the nineteen eighties, he became a born again Christian, which that's always fun. <laughs> and shortly afterwards, started peddling this inspirational landscapes out of the trunk of his car. And that conversion kind of dovetailed with the shift in his career, and he really kind of rebelled against what, what they thought about this elite modern art, and he started to focus on retail. Like, why, are, why is art not accessible to the average person was sort of where he started. And that's a great point. You know, why should this only be for the wealthy? Why can't no, everyone... In price or in the subject matter of what he painted? or I'd say both. I'd say, but for sure, price, accessibility. Because that's always interested me is... People like him, um, I'm drawing a blank, but you know the one the one in 20 household paintings because we see them in, right. in people's houses. And you wonder how somebody gets to a point where they can do something that one in 20 people like. Right. That you'd be like, hey, this will be a guy that everybody's going to have a Kincaid hanging in their in their house somewhere. Yes. Or, you know, anyone of Irish descent gets, gets their name painted on there, you know, Duffy's Cottage or whatever. Right. You know, you I would imagine other guys can take a stab at that and it doesn't awaken the same things in people yes and therefore it's not in one in 20 homes right again and that's kind of what drew me to him in the first place is that i might not really like what he does but a lot of people did yeah a lot of people do right and there's something there there's something that speaks to a lot of people that they want this hanging on their wall there's paintings by picasso that i'm like wow that's that's really cool i don't want it on my wall right in fact you know you don't ever really see uh reproductions of masters hanging in people's houses unless someone's got haystacks or something like right, that. But right. no, one, no one has the Mona Lisa yeah. hanging in their house. Right, right. Yeah. It's interesting. So we talked about that he was he, what he considered the elite modernism art. So moving to retail and not, he didn't want to do the traditional gallery system where my art hangs here, you know, gallery owners sell it. So he began publishing inexpensive prints of his work. So he would do, you know, the original and then started printing copies like posters mm-hmm. of his of his work and opened his own galleries and was selling his own work at these galleries. They say they weren't just galleries. They were Thomas Kincaid experiences. So people would be ushered into these rooms, these climate-controlled rooms, viewing the room maximum um, Kincaidness of the whole place, they said the experience. Some galleries offered master highlighters. So this was someone trained close to Thomas Kincaid who would come in and like add paint to the print. So okay. they would paint on top of it. It's wild. When do you think he did that? What, what years was he doing that kind of stuff? So that was, and then what did we say, nine, uh, in the 80s is kind of when that started. 
I think 95 was kind of the peak, sort of when he started to really get super popular. So this was the 80s. Um, but that's interesting to me because if you think about uh, people like Ed Sheeran or other artists who have said, I don't want to stick with convention. I don't want my stuff to be managed by, in Kincaid's case, the gallery system. But in Ed Sheeran's case, I'm, I'm not waiting for some studio to think I'm worthy. And he, so you think about today, there's so many outlets for that because of the, it's the digital age. Here, Kincaid's doing it at a time when he's literally got to either put up brick and mortar or drive around and sell stuff out of his car. But it's the same concept of, I'm not waiting for someone else to deem, <clears throat> excuse me, deem my stuff worthy. I'm going to just take it to the public myself. Right. Or have and have that artistic control, too, right? Have that control over, I'm not going to wait for a gallery to tell me if this is good or not. Right. I'm just going to do it, and I have total control over that. And that, I think, is at a, it was at a time when no no one else was doing that. Right. So, you know, we're again, like you said, 80s, it seems early like 90s. self-publishing is maybe the one art form where that hasn't worked. You know, Kincaid obviously oh, sold a lot. Like books, and, you mean? Like, yeah. Okay. I mean, clearly, there are a lot of, a lot of uh, musical artists that build a huge following on YouTube or elsewhere before they kind of go the commercial route. But it seems like you hear about people who self-publish, but you don't. I don't see self-published titles that become big books. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a good point. So we mentioned about the, these master uh, painters would come in and again add paint on top of these prints. People would pay a lot of money for these these paintings. Um, and again, most of these were, were prints. They were not they were not the original mm-hmm. painting that he did. And they he has, like the one out of two fifty on the bottom or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, they're they're not like he, his gallery is not his originals. Yeah. They're all, they're all prints. So he infused his work with a lot of faith. We talked about him being a born-again Christian. So deliberately he would, uh, like he put the lights in there as well. That was sort of a, supposed to be a symbol of hope for people. And a lot of, he did a lot of churches, a lot of Bible references. He had the Christian symbol of a fish in with his signature. And sometimes he would include traces of his own DNA from blood and hair mixed in with the paint that he used. At one point, they, his factory, so he had these factories, they would churn out as many as 500 reproductions a day. Wow. And they would sell for thousands of dollars in the galleries. Oh, so again, these are these are prints of the originals right. selling for thousands of dollars. That 60 Minutes, kind of at the documentary thing that I was talking about where they talked about Thomas Kincaid, they go to these people's homes who are collecting these. And they're covering every inch of their walls. And, and they've spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on these prints not even original paintings and they just there's something they just feel so happy that they have these you know beautifully framed in their house did they did any of those people talk about what speaks to them in those paintings why it's important for them to have those i think what spoke to a lot of people is when they look at these images it's a place they want to be so they look at these cottages it's almost like this perfect dream world that it's not upsetting it's not stressful they look at this and think, that's a peaceful, beautiful place. I want to be inside that cottage, or I want to be inside that church, or I want to walk through that down that road. So that's really what draws a lot of people to those to those images, yeah, and to that, and collecting that, and having that surround them. Right, which that's that's kind of bizarro to me because it jives with what I think of art as well. Even if I see a movie, read a book, listen to a song, if if something can. For instance, if I could go in happy and come out sad, if I could go in sad and come out mad, if I if art actually can move your mood, that's so cool to me. And I, there are landscape paintings or, or paintings of, of places that I look at and think, you know, that makes me happy to think to be there. His are so kitschy and so not real looking that I don't, I can't picture myself being in that cottage. It just... Right. I think, too, like the colors to me are, aren't believable. Right. And that's kind of what turns me off is that I love, like my painting in my dining room upstairs. I don't know if you know that one. Mm-hmm. And it's like a little cafe and the door right. is open. There's right. no people in it. To me, in my when I look at that, I think that's me. I'm sitting in this cafe and I'm going to walk out that door and have an amazing day. I'm in some small European town, yep. but I can place myself there. It's believable. Right. And I love that. And that's exactly what I was trying to get at. And you articulated it better than I did. And that painting... And your dining room does the same thing for me, too. It, it reminds me, there was a little place, and I, I feel like everyone who starts something with, when I was in Paris, when I was, so sounds so effective, affected, rather, but when I was in Sydney, there is a, a place on a beach, it's kind of a crescent-shaped beach, and out at one of the points of the crescent, there's a little cafe like that, that the doors open and the 
drapes are kind of blowing and and the guy that that was manning it the day we were there is like puts out a little bit of tea and, and a, a perfect little croissant and he's like he is hollywood casting to be in that place and that makes me feel good and and that painting in your dining room moves me to those places right, but right. I, you know I, I grew up going to cottages. I love that. I've been to Ireland several times, and I love that. He does not make me feel like that's a cottage, or is it Ireland? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Again, and you know, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, right? So, what what his paintings do for some people, you know, same thing. There's there's paintings that uh, that I look at and I think I don't I don't get it. Right. I don't get it. That's and there's I I was hard pressed. I did try to look at as many as I could to find one that I liked. Mm-hmm. And I found that the more muted tones that he used, the more kind of believable colors. I just feel like in a way they're almost fluorescent. Like yeah, some right. of his colors are almost fluorescent. They're right. not believable to me. And that's, I think, what what kind of turns me off a little bit. I like I prefer more muted tones. But, is, there, is there a painting in the world that, um, that we would both know, that most people would know, that does that to you, that you love to look at? And, I mean, obviously not everybody gets to come to your dining room, but... Right. I'm trying to think the Art Institute. Um, That's where I was leading you, because there's one at the Art Institute that does that for me. Oh, my gosh. I can't think. Will you tell me yours? So there is um, there is a Renoir there that's it's two sisters. And one of them's it's really vibrant colors. They're sitting in a garden. And it's something about it. they both have like cherubic little faces and one of the the color blue and the color red that are in their clothes it's just i, I just go there and stare at it mm-hmm. and, and it's mesmerizing yeah. and it doesn't even it doesn't do the same thing in terms of i'm not thinking of this little garden in france and i, I would love to be there but there's just something about it where you look at these girls and they're compelling right. and you're trying to think about what they're thinking about and it's just really really cool i think probably i would say i went to the john singer Sargent exhibit maybe a year ago that they had at the art institute and there were so many sketches and paintings there that I just was, I couldn't stop looking at. Just these beautiful, you know, these giant portraits of these women and the dresses. And I'm fascinated by how do you make something look like fabric mm-hmm. on a can? How do you make something look like it's shiny and um, and soft and like the pleats? And, and then there was another, there was a sketch there that was just a black, like black charcoal sketch of this woman with this, it was like a fur around her shoulders. And I just thought I could see the fur and it was just with black charcoal. It was, you know, almost like this paint pencil sketch. And I thought, that's just, that's stunning. Right. That he made, you know, with a, with a pencil mm-hmm. was able to give that much depth to this, this sketch. There was a couple other sort of, um, he's known mostly for these sort of portraits, but there was one that sort of reminded me of like, you know, the, um, what's the, um, just sort of the, the like the outdoor outdoors like nature scenes. I can't think of the name of the school that that did all those those nature scenes. But it was sort of like um, this rocky uh, crag with this beautiful waterfall coming down. It was just the colors were just so beautiful. So I find like I have certain places that I have to go to every time I go there. Right. I got to go see the George O'Keeffe's. Mm-hmm. I got to go see you know the American Gothic. I got to see Nighthawks. I have to see the. Um, the picture of Dorian Gray. You know, I have to kind right. of work, and then there's other areas that I have to kind of go through. Yeah. Actually, those three that you just mentioned are in the same area, right? Yeah, on the, on the first floor in the basement, whatever it's called. I think they're up. They're upstairs. It's yeah. Yeah. Uh, there. So, if you go in the impressionist section, and the that big Surratt is there with yeah. all of the, the pointillist uh-huh. thing, that's where the Renoir hangs. But if you if you are staring at that and you go left, you go into the next room and there's someone that does exactly what you're talking about. There, there are tables with white tablecloths and you just, you're staring at it, like trying to convince yourself that you're looking at a tablecloth. Cause right. like, how in God's name did this guy do this? Right. That's right. just really, really Talent. cool. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. And realism doesn't always do a whole lot for me. I just, I think part of the creative thing is, is someone who said, yeah, this, this is how I see this, or this is what's in my brain. And, mm-hmm. You wonder because every kid who, who draws or paints tries to draw or paint something that looks like a photograph. Just realism, right? The, like the, the creative side that lets you go beyond that is cool to me. And yet every now and again, and there's some stuff there where a bowl on a table looks like a like it's ceramic, and you right. want to touch it, and it's like uber realism, and it's still really cool. Right. And two, you know that the whole idea of the realism sort of changed after the invention of the the camera when they were like, 
well, if I want a real picture that looks a portrait that looks like myself, I'm going to take a picture. Right. And that's going to look like me. So a lot of artists really had kind of changed their style because they're like, we can do this with a camera. What what can I do that's different? So right. it sort of forced, that's sort of the, led to the um, Impressionist movement, the Surrealist movement that really kind of led to these these changes and artists who are like, what can I do differently? So I'm going to paint the, I'm going to paint the light like an Impressionist. I'm going to paint how the light hits this haystack or I'm going to paint how, um, light hits this building at different times of the day and how it changes the color instead of trying to make it look like a real building. Right. And yeah. so, yeah, that's fascinating. I love to, there's, there's one painting in the modern wing. I cannot think of who did it, but it's one of these paintings. It's this beautiful outdoor scene and right in the center of it is this giant orange red ball, like the sun setting, mm -hmm. but it's like everything else is completely real and, and beautiful and soft. And then this ball, like is not, tried to blend it's not tried to make it blend in with the background yeah. it's just stuck on there and there's something about it that's kind of disconcerting but it's just such a cool i love it it's, such, yeah. it's very dark it's a really dark painting i'm like again how can you make it so dark but yet have it be um i can see all the details you know it's just it's amazing i don't have that talent i don't know <laughs> but no it's, it's fun because you can you can be mesmerized by someone's technique like how yeah. do they do that you mesmerize like wh why did he yeah. do it you know, just that's what I think is is cool about their institute is that you can you can just be mesmerized for a, a bunch of different ways in a bunch of different paintings. But again, it's it's a, a piece of static art right. that changes your mood. Yeah. You know, it's not film or it's not. It's just cool. Yeah. Well, Jamie and I took my kids, Jamie and Julia, there one time when they were little. And one of the art pieces of art was um, three white canvases, totally blank, nothing on them. And my kids go, I, I could do that. And I said, right, but you didn't, and right. he did it first. Yeah, that's where the art, that's where artistic quality comes in. Is right. somebody conceived of that, and right. having that come out of your brain is what's no cool. one else was doing that. Yeah, this guy did it, and hit, and I, I love to read. Okay, so why? So I always get the headsets because mm -hmm. I can walk past something and have no idea what it's about. And if you know the background about a painting, it's so much more interesting. Mm -hmm. You could just skate past all these things. And his, the guy, the painters intention with that was the minute I put something on this canvas, I limit what it can be. So with nothing on it, it can be whatever you want. Which, again, people would say, well, that's crap. Yeah. <laughs> it's a white canvas. But that's a great point. You're right. You yeah. limit you limit what your what your your viewer can see right. by what you put on there and, and you control that. So I thought that was just an interesting It is cool. Well I, I think like I like Jackson Pollock and you know, people say mm -hmm. oh, I could I could just spray paint all over it. Well, but you don't and you didn't. And he and did it just, first. Yeah, and it's just cool. He did it at a time when no one else was doing that. And he tried very hard to make it not look like something. If you're going to do all that painting and all that, if you've ever seen, there's a movie, Pollock, that's really mm -hmm. good, Ed Harris. Mm -hmm. yep. Fascinating. And you re really learn about his technique and what kind of drew him to, to do that. But he really didn't want it to look like anything. He actually stopped naming the paintings, too, because he thought a name would would influence you to what it was. Mm -hmm. He just wanted to get pure emotion. Yeah, which is cool. Yeah. I think that's, in all artists, all art forms, so we do... Um, security for television shows and over the course of the years we've done it there are times i thought are are the actors cool are the writers cool are the lighting technicians cool and, and you, you just think about how they're producing art and i feel like the director and the director of photography for me is where the art is well and the, and the writer as well absolutely i, I become less and less impressed with the, with the artist and or, or rather with the with the actors yes who are reading words other people wrote. right so i think it's that concept of i have this in my brain i want to get it out of my right. brain and that's the creative process so how will i tell that story will i paint it will i right. film it will i write it and and that part of it is cool there's a, i really wish i had this with me but um there's a lynn manuel miranda had a um i saw a youtube interview about why he does what he does and his creative process and he said i have to do it i have to get this stuff out of my brain because if i didn't it would only live in my brain and I feel the need to kind of like loose it essentially. Right. And, um, which if you hear him, if you see the interview, that sounds really arrogant the way I just said it, but he doesn't seem arrogant. He doesn't come right. across being arrogant. It comes across more like I got to do this. Like I, I, right. I'm going to die yeah. if I don't tell my story. Right. That's the artist. And you and I were talking about this earlier too, that 
I'm fascinated by people who are saying, I don't know how I'm going to pay the rent. I don't know how I'm going to, like, I don't, I don't have a 401k. I'm not worrying about these practical things, but I have to do this. Mm -hmm. I have to write this musical. I have to create this. I have to do this. And I will figure the rest out later. That to me is fascinating. And I just think that some people just have this innate desire that they have to create something. And again, that's why I have this podcast is because that fascinates me. And I feel the same thing. Like I want to talk to people about these things because I think these are really interesting. Maybe I'll have maybe three listeners. That's okay. Because I just love to talk about it. And so I love being able to share that with other people and get it out of my head. Right. (laughs) Lin-Manuel Miranda to quote him. Right. (laughs) Right. I wish, again, I wish I had it exactly because I I did write it down somewhere because it's just awesome. But I I think I I sent a text to you when we were talking about doing this. It's the truest expression of a human being to to create something. Yes. You know, and I think, you know, even myself, when I traded at the Board of Trade and just making money with money and not... Not being creative, not building anything, not employing anybody, not, and it just, and maybe it's because I'm older now, maybe it's because I can no longer do that, you know, who knows how the evolution of your thought process goes along, but I just feel like we're, we're here to, to build something, to help a child, to right. employ people, to create things, you know, right. to, that's, that's your soul at its, at its greatest expression. Well, I teach a humanities class, and the first night I go over why you need humanities, why are you taking this class? I have you know, students who are computer science majors, they're cybersecurity, they're uh, business majors. So why am I taking a class about humanities? And one of, I have six points we go over what we talk about, but one of them is that you need beauty in your life. You need beauty. You need something that inspires you. You're not going to go home and, and think about your job all night. You're going to put on the TV. You're going to play music. You're going to do something that pulls you out of that. Mm-hmm. And they say that people who have a, a, a background in humanities end up doing better in the business world, that they get more promotions, they make more money because they have this ability to kind of look at connections in the world and um, make connections with people, but just to see kind of the bigger picture instead of just, I know how to do program this computer. So having that experience. So I really, uh, I'm definitely a proponent of, of all of that for, to give your life interest. Right. And the world tries to beat that out of kids now because School or college in particular is almost by necessity vocational training because it costs so much. And these right. kids have to get out and they have to think about it. Where in the old days when people would say, oh, you know what, study whatever you want undergrad. And once you figure out where you want to go, you'll go get a master's degree anyway or whatever it might be. And, and people could do liberal arts. And now I think these kids say, no, you know what, this is $50,000 a year. I have to go study cybersecurity, right. and graduate, make money day one. And it, it, it kind of stops that freedom of expression that says but along the way i want to learn about painters or writers or you know whatever how to to make a a wooden bench and that's kind of a shame oh it's it's tragic (laughs) i think it's tragic because i think we lose a lot and the more you understand that there's other people in the world who think like you do who feel like you feel who can express something either in a book or a painting or a song that can express something a feeling that you feel you recognize that you have connections with other people in the world and the more we do that, the more we're less likely to see people as other and to discount people. And we can look back thousands of years and see, um, you know, cave paintings or, or that people felt the need to, to artistically express what was happening in their lives. That was important. So I feel like that's, that's a huge thing of our humanity, that if right. we don't recognize the fact that someone else feels what I feel and, or that someone else is feeling this we're going to lose a lot and we're going to lose our connection to each other. I think that's, that's a huge part of, of our problem. Yeah, no, I think that's true. And I think there's a, this is going to seem really tangential, but I'll try to bring it back around. I was talking to a guy after my dad died this summer who told me about a book called permission to mourn. And he was, um, he's a priest has kind of become a friend and he's like, you know, a lot of people you'll have feelings and, and some of them you'll indulge yourself and others you'll feel like, I don't have a right to feel this way, and you try to suppress it. And he said, no, you, you have the right to feel that way. And I think there are some people that have that same kind of feeling about art, that it's weird or mm-hmm. out there or to talk about it or think about right. it. And even with my kids, when they're like, hey, Dad, l- listen to this song. I love this song. And I'd love to be like, well, why do you love it? What, right. what is it? And and in my own evolution, I remember I used to listen to music. Just It was white noise going through my ears, and I liked it. And I would have said, oh, I like you too, or I like whoever it is. And when I started to think about why do they write what they write, what's the meaning behind it, how does it really make me feel, what were they trying to express, 
it just to me art became more fun when I started to think about it in that way. And right. so it's fun, I think, with my kids or anyone else to say, well, why, how, why does that move you? How does right. it move you? What, what do you like about it? And that's a great way, too, to connect with someone. You and I have talked in the past about small talk, right? And how when you meet somebody for the first time, what, what parish are you from? What, you know, the, the standard questions. And then the next time you're like, I don't know what to say. Right. <laughs> but I think music is a really great way to easily connect with someone or understand them. Who's your favorite band? What concerts have you been to recently? You can really get a sense of that person and what they like. And it's a lot easier for people to talk about that. Right. And, um, but I think it's a great, I think it's a, a great conversation to have. I used to do that as an icebreaker in my classes, write down a list of your five favorite songs and then go walk around the room and talk with other people about them. Right. Well, There's, I think the consumption of art in that way is safe. And talking about it is safe because everybody knows you have a favorite exactly. song, you have a favorite movie. Exactly. The, the creation of it, not so safe. And and I think that's what's so cool about it, if you stop and think. To watch someone to just move their body on a stage and dance is essentially dumb. I mean, you look at this going, <laughs> what, why are we doing this? And then you realize that you know, people have done that for thousands of years right. to express themselves or sing. And you, so... The lack of safeness of it, I think about, you know, if you and I say, what's your favorite movie? You know, we kind of bond a little bit. If you went out in front of your house right now and started dancing, <laughs> they would lock you up. Or if you sang or, but you know, you go Would they, your... Steve, wouldn't they gather around and just cheer me well, on? Well, maybe for you. For me, they <laughs> lock the doors, put their kids in their bedrooms. But I, I think if you went to a Panera today and a guy's working on his computer, no part of you would say, oh, how sad. It's a Saturday. How, how many hours is he going to work? Because we all just accept that. Yes. If you walked in and he was singing, you'd say, like, this, this lunatic should be rounded up and put away. <laughs> right, right. And so, it's not safe to express yourself yeah. artistically. Yeah, it's a risk. It's a yeah, risk. Absolutely. But yeah. the consumption of it, for those of us who don't make it and just consume it, it becomes a safe thing to share amongst one another because it's low impact. It's I don't have to ask you about you know your political affiliations or right. how you raise your kids yeah. or have you saved enough money to retire, things that are not safe. Right. We can sit and talk about, did you think Godfather 1 was better than Godfather 2? <laughs> and, and there's a commonality that's, yeah. that's safe. But art provides that. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, great. So what were we talking about? I don't know. Kincaid was involved somewhere. Oh, some for point. gosh sakes. But All you right. know what? We should have, as much fun as it is to, to be tangential, yeah. I want to get to the Valium and alcohol part. Oh, we haven't yeah. gotten there yet. Oh, oh, okay. There's one scene I cannot wait to share with you because I think you're going to get a big kick out of it. All right. So um, they talked about his production method. That's sort of a semi-industrial process, like low-level apprentices would embellish this prefab base. So, like I said, they would print out this poster, and then they'd have all these people in there with brushes, and someone would come by and go, have blue, and go, I'm going to do a dab on the blue flowers, or I'm going to do a dab on this. You know, someone have the red, someone have the pink, and they would kind of paint over Mm -hmm. his print. So people are like, oh, this is actually painted. It's painted on here when it's... Just sort of like a paint by numbers in a way. Yeah. I want to buy the one where someone went rogue. <laughs> Sorry, putting, putting really paint bad. stuff where it wasn't meant to be. It's like a clown, a big clown. Right, stop it. There's no clown in that cottage. <laughs> right, a scary face. Right. Like picking out a ghost. So they said he designed and painted all of his works, but then moved on to the next stage of the mass producing the prints. So they say he had a hand in most of the original conceptual work that he produced. I love that most. It's like, wait, he didn't even do some of the originals? Right. Whoa, okay. It's, it makes me think of James Patterson. Oh, what? Do you, so there's a thing called, and everyone should check it out. It, it's it's called Masterclass. Okay. You go on the computer. Right. Malcolm, Malcolm oh, yeah. Gladwell has one, blah, blah, blah. Yes. Well, I'm, you know, I, I, at some point, I, I'll write the great American novel like yes. all 37 million other people who never will, including me, but who think they will. And so I, I love to hear people's process and what they do. And Patterson had such a class. And then there was he was on CBS Sunday morning, and so I was interested, and I took a look at it. And he is, um, he's got like the germ of ideas in, in his study and these long rows of, of file cabinets, and, and other people write them. And he, and he, the stuff gets published under the name James You're Patterson. You're kidding me. Yeah. And I, and, and I understand that um, Daniel Steele did that. And some of these other people that like mass produced. So fiction. they would kind of come up with like a formula yep. and say, here's the premise, here's the thing. And then someone else writes it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's kind of like, again, there wow. where, where there's there are other people altering those those paintings and they're, they're still sold as Kincaid. So right. Kincaid's in there somewhere, you know, and Patterson's in there somewhere. Okay. But I, you know, that's how he comes out with 10 novels a year instead of three in a lifetime. Yeah, and I guess, you know, when you think about it, too, that, I mean, that goes back 
centuries, right? You think about like Michelangelo, I mean, yeah, he didn't just do the Sistine Chapel by himself. You know what I mean? Yeah. He would like sketch and other people would come in and fill it in. And, mm-hmm. you know, so you do that. I guess that's probably been happening forever. Just... Yeah. And I think it's, it's not, it's not fraudulent in the, in the sense that if, if you're reading Patterson because you like kind of the, how his novels go and you're entertaining yourself or it's a release from something, who cares? I mean, it's a, he doesn't have to write Jane Eyre every time he, he right. puts pen to paper. Right. You know, and I, I think that people discount that part of their lives too, that being entertained, getting away. I, that's always my argument when someone says, well, a, a guy playing shortstop is not worth $20 million if, if, if a nurse doesn't make that. And I say, you know, why would you discount the importance of sports in some people's lives? Like you were talking earlier, it's commonality for some people. It's a release. I went and worked right. my ass off all day and I can watch my beloved White Sox. And the idea that, you know, there are 10 people on my block that can do what I do for a living. There aren't 10 people in, in the world who can do what Tom Brady does. Right. The scarcity of that's worth a lot of money. And, and to just say, oh, it's just a sport or it's just a, you know, a song or it's just a concert. Like, why does the justa have to be in front of that? It's, right. It's important. It's, it's you know, people, I might say more people watch sports as release than people who come in contact with a, with a, a, a neonatologist. Right. Or, so how do you judge what's important? And, and certainly saving somebody's life on the grand scale is more important than someone throwing a football. Right. But in, in people's individual lives, whether it's art, whether it's sports, whether it's those other things that we use for that, it's, I think it's important. Well, it's entertainment. Right. And so it's some, there's something about the word just entertainment as if it's not, it's not essential. Right. It's always when you're figuring out your budget, like the last thing you have is like, you know, entertainment stuff. It's like right. that, that to me is way more important. You know, I have season tickets for so many theaters. I'm downtown once or twice a month to see something, to see some show, or to go to a concert. That to me, that's essential to who I am. Mm-hmm. That's essential to me being happy. So how is that any different from going to see a baseball game or right. a football game? Or It gives you something else to think about. I don't want to sit and talk about politics. I don't want to sit and talk about my kids. I'm bored to death, right? right? I want something else to be in my mind to think about and to talk about. Yeah, and doesn't everyone leave those experiences thinking, we should do this more often? Yes. Every time you do it, it makes yes. you feel so good. Yeah. Yeah, and it's whatever. There are reasons you don't. Life is busy. Things right. are expensive. It's expensive, but yeah. But it's, yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And I think it touches that same part in your in your brain that feels the need to be creative and that gets a kick out of other people being creative. Right. Like you said, how, how's a person use a piece of charcoal and draw fur that looks real? Yes. It's neat to go there in your brain and yeah. think about how the heck does someone do that? Right. Right. It's cool. I don't feel that way when I meet with my accountant. How the, <laughs> how the heck did you make that column of numbers add up? You know, and, right? And certainly, he doesn't think it's neat when I come in with all my stuff in sixteen different envelopes. Like, is there any organization here at all? Yes. Yeah, your receipts shoved in a shoebox. Right. 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 Okay. So back to Thomas Kincaid because we got to get to the, the juicy stuff, right? right. Uh, we talked about him hiring these people to kind of paint. So this factory like. He, touch up strokes from other artists. So the we definitely do like those light effects um, that we talked about. The that people really love the painter of light. Of course, he's known as the painter of light. So that was really important. Um, Hallmark had a licensing agreement with him. They've made you've seen calendars, jigsaw puzzles, greeting cards. Uh, you know this lifestyle brand I mentioned that Lazy Boy Furniture mm-hmm. had a line. They have fabric. You know that's Thomas Kincaid fabric. He also developed this place called the Village. A Thomas Kincaid community that was unveiled in 2001. It's 101 home development in Vallejo, outside of San Francisco. Do okay. are you familiar with that mm-hmm. area? Yeah, you go to San Francisco a lot. Yeah. So you know that. Maybe you can go visit. Yeah, I can go to. It sounds really Stepfordish. Oh my gosh! So um, the slogan was "Calm, not chaos; peace, not pressure." He offered four designs, each named after one of his daughters. Of course, I'd so, pick the Merritt over the Chandler. <laughs> He lent his name to this village for marketing, but he didn't design the homes. Okay. So again, he just kind of said, here's my name, use my name. Residents are not allowed to change color of their homes, so they have to keep that. There's, there's all these rules, mm-hmm. right, to keep it look like that. They cannot park their cars on the street, so they have all these rules. They had other plans for all these other housing developments, but then we had the house, housing market crash, and mm-hmm. so those stopped. So there's just this one, 101 uh, community and a lot of people again they bought they're like when you look at the paintings you're like I want to live there oh well now you can right you can live in this cottage yeah. right I kind of get that sense of what's what was that show like um, Truman right like I feel like it's like this perfect little right. it's overly planned and... right 
right. white picket fences, all that great stuff. So, um, so while the, the housing market definitely affected that, he also had some former gallery owners who charged that the company used Christianity as a tool to take advantage of people. That they really knew how to bait the hook, said one ex-dealer. He said they certainly used the Christian hook. And one of the dealer's former lawyers stated, most of my clients got involved with Kincaid because it was presented as a religious opportunity. Being defrauded is awful enough, and doing it in the name of God is really despicable. Despicable so and happens deliver, 24 or, hours a day all the time. Right. Oh, that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And even as you've been reading this, I don't know why this is probably super judgmental and probably even wrong, that being a fundamentalist Christian and an artist to me seems like the same brain doesn't do those two things. So why? Fundam- would you, why? I just feel like fundamental Christianity, there's such an adherence to everything's got to be a certain way and, and this is right and that is wrong. And it seems like it'd be difficult to paint and be creative if it had to always, this is right and this is wrong and you can't depict that. You can't paint this way. You have to paint that way. And it sounds too routinized. And mm. to me, the creative mind seems like, oh, yeah, I, I can't find anything because my office is a mess and I spill coffee on everything and I'm, oh, okay. I'm just I'm, – I'm, I'm out there and I'm creative. And they, they just seem like they're at odds in terms okay. of people's personalities. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. Right? You hear like, oh, the, she's a creative – you know, someone who's kind of out there, oh, she's creative. Again, I wouldn't say that about my accountant <laughs> or most – fundamentalist christian it's like is it creative in air quotes like you're like oh you're so creative like it's sort of a you know, backhanded compliment yeah right but no worse than me judging people's creativity right now this <laughs> <laughs> is bad so they said like i think from 1997 to 2005 he earned 53 million but then the other things had 130 so who knows he made a shitload of money yeah he made a shitload of money right they said you know, they had all these galleries, but around 2000, you're, around the 2000s is when everything kind of started to go downhill. So these gallery owners were losing businesses. They were losing money. They had invested in this. And then they just kind of felt, so there was, they were suing him and kind of, because they're like, well, you bought, you sold us, mm-hmm. you know, a bag of goods. So right in the years before his death, um, his business and life really took a battering. There are allegations of malpractice. In 2009, the LA Times reported that the FBI was investigating him for defrauding investors. In 2010, the company's manufacturing arm filed for bankruptcy protection. And also that year, Kincaid was arrested on suspicion of drunk driving and convicted. Yikes. So some former Kincaid employees and gallery opera owners and others contend that the painter of light has a decidedly dark side. Nice. Yes. Plot twist. (laughs) Plot twist. Dun, dun, dun. In litigation interviews with the LA Times, some former gallery owners depict Kincaid as a ruthless businessman who drove them to financial ruin. At the same time, he was fattening his business associates' bank accounts and feathering his nest with tens of millions of dollars. Former colleagues, employees, and even collectors of his work said that he had a long history of cursing and heckling other artists and performers. The Times further reported that he openly fondled women's breasts at a South Bend, Indiana state sales event and mentioned his proclivity for ritual territory marking through urination once relieving himself on a Winnie the Pooh figure at the Disneyland Hotel in Anaheim while saying, this one's for you, Walt. Nice, nice. I'm so, not sure which fundamentalist Christian like Bible he's, he's reading that right. tells what, him to do all that stuff. What, what rule is that in? I mean, right. Yeah, where is that at? Uh, but reading this, I'm like, now I really like him. <laughs> the crazier he gets, the more interesting he gets. The more real he gets. you know. And this whole thing is... All these paintings are kind of sold that he's this this Christian, perfect, loving family man, and it's such a facade, mm-hmm. right? It's such a facade, and so that's what that's what was selling. That's the image, and he had to protect that. His family had to protect that because if that went south, they lost everything, right? right. So they were very protective of any of this stuff getting out. One of the best incidents is great. I think it was in two thousand. He was drunk at a Siegfried and Roy show. In Las Vegas. Well, isn't everybody? I think that's kind of. <laughs> Hopefully not Siegfried and Roy because the White Tigers could get away. And he begins shouting cod piece, cod piece at the performers. Interesting. Yelling that out. And his mother had to calm him down. So that whole story, like, that whole story, I don't know what is the best part of that. You're drunk at a Siegfried and Roy show. You're screaming cod piece and you're there with your mom. 
what is happening? Right? Oh, it's like I love that. I love everything about that. You could you can unpack that for days. <laughs> I know. I know. Uh, they said then in a letter to licensed gallery owners, he acknowledged he may have behaved badly during a very stressful time. He overindulged in food and drink. And uh, they said the counts of his alcohol-related incidents were exaggerated and fabricated. So they, he said that these were just exaggerated. I was not that bad. I just right. was stressed and was eating and drinking more than I should. Right. I, I, I peed on Winnie the Pooh, but I did not say this is for you, Walt. <laughs> it's not as bad as people say. Right. Um, and one of his friends said Tom would be fine again. Tom with an H, T-H-O-M. He would be fine. He'd be drinking. And then all of a sudden you couldn't tell where the boundary was and he would become incoherent. He would start cussing and doing weird, a lot of weird stuff, which would have been awesome right. to be there for. Right. That sounds like our typical weekend when I we were in our twenties. <laughs> right. They're like describing someone who drinks a little bit too much and then gets goofy as if it's like earth shattering. That was us. He would drink a lot and then he would cross a line. <laughs> what? Really? That was a Sunday at schoolyard when you were bartending. <laughs> right. That was every Sunday. Yeah. After a few too many bloody Marys. So following his separation of his wife of 30 years, spiraling alcoholism, his behavior became really erratic. So he died April 6, 2012 at his North California. 54 years old. 54, yeah? Right. Is that what you said? I think, yeah, 54. Oh, good, because I don't do math. Yeah. At his Northern California home, he shared this with his girlfriend and personal assistant, Amy Pinto Walsh. So they really hadn't said anything about the fact that he was separated from his wife, that he was living with his girlfriend. Again, they're trying to maintain this facade of this Christian mm -hmm. man, family man, and he's living with, and the girlfriend had to sign, she was his personal assistant first. She had signed an agreement that not to divulge any information or, you know, tell the press or anybody about what, anything that happened. Right. So according to his family, they immediately said, oh, natural causes. And if you watch news reports from the day, they're like, oh, he died of natural causes. The coroner comes back and they're like, uh, no, um, he was, he overdosed on Valium and alcohol. So the family was even like from the very beginning was trying to protect his reputation, right. protect their money right. essentially. Right. Cause protect now he's brand. gone. The yeah. brand, mm -hmm. absolutely. The brand of Thomas Kincaid. Right. So this death pitted Kincaid's family members and close friends against the living girlfriend, which you can imagine in a fight over his company, legacy and public image. Right. Following his death, Pinto Walsh, she was 48. She made statements to local newspapers saying that Kincaid had died in his sleep and that she's the one who'd called 911 from the home they shared. Also, she said he'd, she'd been his girlfriend for 18 months. Everything she should not be doing, right? right. That she signed and said, right, right. people can't know he's separated. People can't know he's got a girl. People can't know he's, you know, you can't be talking to the press. Right. So when asked about the cause of death, she said, oh, I'm not supposed to say. But uh, he had a heart condition and died in his sleep. So she... Did say. Right. But a heart condition that probably, I think, maybe the alcohol and Valium, I don't think that helps. Yeah, I would guess not. Uh, yeah, okay. So in other words, he drank himself to death. Right. So How artistic of him, though. <laughs> he, yeah. He could have been at the White Horse in the village as a writer and yes. drank himself to death and he would be celebrated. Right. So they have a 911 recording where she calls and she says, we've been drinking. He'd been drinking the night before he died. And so then all of a sudden people are like, wait, what? So now there's all this media coverage about his alcoholism and his family's really, really mad. The, her, his widow and the estate started battling this girlfriend over her comments. They're like, you broke this confidentiality agreement. You, we're not supposed to talk about this. And so they have this huge fight with her. They, uh, um, the wife especially and the, you know, the, all these business holdings, they put a restraining order against her saying, you cannot talk about this anymore. You cannot talk about him. They were terrified that she was just going to tell things she shouldn't and, again, ruin the right. brand. Mm -hmm. So they, she had said, a lot of people came forward saying, well, she said she was going to um, spill the beans and she was going to tell all this stuff. She, she told the bodyguard. The bodyguard was like, yeah, absolutely, she will tell whatever she can. So they were really trying to get her to stop uh, talking. They also found, which I, I wish you could see copies of this. I should pull this up. This will that he had written out with her. So let's imagine you're as drunk as you've ever been in your life and you have to write a paper. It is the most chicken scratch, ridiculous thing. It's like almost completely illegible on this piece of paper where he says, I want her, this Pinto Walsh, to have $10 million and my house. And he signs it and dates it. And it's just like this scratch piece of paper. And she has him do it twice. 
So there's two copies of this. She's like, oh, here's his new will. Yeah, and she's propping him up and holding his hand while he does it. it that, that's what it looked like. It right. looked like someone, if you were sleeping and someone picked up your hand and right. wrote this out. Right. It's the most ridiculous thing. And the last paragraph says, and to my ex-wife, I leave my calendar. <laughs> I know she likes pasta. That's my dirty laundry. Right. Yeah, so she, they also said she knew special secrets about his painting techniques. I think it's called a printing press. I don't, I don't right. really know. But that she knew all these trade secrets that she was going to divulge. So they were really worried about that. They ended up settling eventually. And so they privately, they, I think 2012, they ended up. So Kincaid's death went largely unnoted in the art world. There were uh, no really long obituaries in the quality press, surprisingly. Their critics were not lining up to say how amazing he was and the influence of his art. But for the fact that even though, again, we mentioned we're not huge fans of it, it was so popular. Right. Right? It was so popular. It tells us something about his audience, his public. They wanted this. They yearned for this sort of nostalgia, this sort of... um, safety right the mm-hmm. safe beautiful hopeful place and so you can't deny that no. uh, that so many people right. wanted this and, and you can't make this. up whether it's 53 million or 103 million you can't make that up that's success on a pretty grand scale yes absolutely i think they said his net worth when he died was like over 70 million dollars yeah. which is is pretty good yeah, it's pretty good he says that when i got saved god became my art agent was his that's a good agent yeah right i don't I just like that agent. It seems like his, his agent was looking their way on things, but. <laughs> or not. <laughs> right, right, right. And... Or looking right at him. Like, really? Yeah. So they said there's been, um, he was, oh, he, this is a great quote for him. He said, there's been million, million seller books, million seller CDs, but until now, there hasn't been a million seller art. We found a way to bring millions of people in art that they can understand. He's not wrong about that, I He's guess. He's not wrong about that. Yeah. No, I don't think he is. I think that's, again, why what's so fascinating is that I'm not a huge fan, but a lot of people were. A lot of people are. And you'll see it. You go, Again, you go to most homes, you'll see one of these paintings or see it somewhere. Yeah. No, I think that's right. You know, here's the thing. This is not about creativity. In fact, it's it's me grandstanding about parenting. But um, I feel like I, I always say this to my kids and to my wife, too, that there is a normal. When people say, oh, there is no normal. Sure there is. And, and the further you get away from that, like how he lived and the things he did, the more your problems become bizarro. It's just weird. Like the rest of us worry about is are your missing assignments made up? Is your coat warm enough? Do we have enough money to pay the mortgage and still maybe take a little trip at spring break? With normal things. And we and we kind of bounce along doing our thing. And, and it seems like the people that in a lot of cases we idealize or live this less than normal situation end up being the people that crash and burn in the most dramatic way right because it's a lot of us there's something we share in our humanity that's just the same thing protect ourselves eat Mm -hmm. you know raise our kids love one another and someday move along and and when you get far afield from that weird shit starts to happen right yeah well burning your candle at both ends yeah right and it's it's gonna it's gonna catch you and and i also think that's the, the other side of that though is if you would start to unpack all of our baggage, everybody's got shit. It right. never, you know, I, I try to tell my kids that too, that, you know, I've had meetings in, in business with guys who I go in thinking, oh my God, yeah, this guy's whoever he is. Right. I, 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 this is going to be, he's going to blow me out of the water. I don't know what I'm going to do. And you come out going, not only did he not blow me out of the water, it's he wasn't even impressive. Right. And, and you just realize that we're, we're just all pretty much the same. Right. And, right. and we all have really weird baggage. And, right. Your first marriage doesn't work out, and your eighteen-month girlfriend signs your will, and does right. what, you know, it's, we all have yeah. our stuff. Yeah, and I think too, part of that is when you live these this high-risk lifestyle, it's high risk, and there's chances that things are going to happen to you. So you're not always surprised when you see that, but when it's someone who doesn't take the risks, who lives a great life, when you're like, wait, no, no, it's almost like the other person. You could almost say, yeah, I could see that coming. Yeah. But for someone who doesn't take those risks, you're like, ah, yeah, they didn't even. Right. And it goes back to, uh, I think a lot of people like to point to, oh, you know, that guy made all that money. Look what he did. Or this guy's whatever. But dates whoever because he's a rich actor. At some point, you have to think about who who's attracted to that. You know, when when policemen or soldiers or people like that do something that's overly aggressive or seems mean, it, it, and everyone wants to kind of point to the moment. 
I like to go back and think, who's attracted to that in the first place? Probably an aggressive sort. There's no wallflower that wants to be a soldier right. or a policeman. Right. So who's attracted to taking the kind of risk you're talking about and making art? Right. It's not a guy with, with a mind that says, dot every I and cross every T. That's, exactly. that's not who seeks that job. Okay. No. So yeah. later when it goes awry, it, it's a little... It's a little um, I don't know, logically bankrupt to be like, see what happened to him? Like, well, no, he came out of the womb like that. Yeah. You know, and, and other things exacerbated along the way, but we're drawn to what we're drawn to because of how we're wired. Yeah. And in fact, I would guess that, you know, I don't know. I was going to say, I would guess that true happiness probably comes from people who stick closer to those things. And yet it seems like a lot of artists and people who do like avant-garde things for a living are people who die young or have substance abuse problems or whatever it might right. be. So I don't know. You know, I don't know if it truly does does make him happy, but right. it's a. Uh, I think the artist's brain, or someone that would take the kind of risks you're talking about, is is probably ripe to have less than socially normal stuff happen to him. Yeah, and again, that's the kind of the premise of this whole podcast, right? Is that creative people and their baggage is right. sort of my tagline with that because it, I love reading about them, I love talking about them, but like, what what was their baggage? What did they what did they bring with them? Well, mm-hmm. and like you said, there's demons. They, a lot of these people have demons, but at the same time, they're able to do things that your average person can't do. Right. And it's such a cool, creates such a cool story. Right. And it's, I think it's okay when you say what the average person can't do. I think there's a, a subset of people that likes to try to, like, kind of smooth that hill out and say, well, you know, we're all the same, and he just does that. I think it's okay to say no, we're not. Like some people, you know, you brought up Michelangelo earlier. That's he's. Once in a lifetime. Right. That's okay. Right. Like, I don't have to be him. But I, I think noticing that and enjoying it is part of what's cool about just absolute greatness. Right. It, you know, people think Tiger Woods is a scoundrel and he sucks and blah, blah, blah. But that kind of domination on one level is fun to watch. Mm-hmm. And and the same with a painter, the same with Charlie Trotter cooking, the same with any of those right. guys. That I, I'm not them. There's right. something in them, whether it's intelligence or drive or other things they have that I don't have. Michael Jordan, people like that, that rather than try to make them human and make me feel better, I think it's fun to sort of relish in just how flipping crazy it yeah. is, how talented yeah. some people are and how creative they are and yeah. what they're driven to do. And it's cool. I love it. Yeah. yeah. I love it. It's really cool. So and we should celebrate about... it, right? We should that, well, yeah, that's... celebrate greatness. I think to, there's there's so much now about don't, don't hurt someone's feelings or don't make people feel bad or don't. And at some point, I think that dumbs it all down. To a level where I'd rather say no. Let's let's celebrate people who are great, or different, or achieve, and 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 hopefully you're trying to examine that in your own life to the extent that you can. Right. And it's okay. Yeah. We don't. You know, I don't have to sell a hundred million paintings to, to think my life was worth something. Right. But I should be thinking about that kind of greatness yeah. and how do you get there as a parent or as a English teacher or whatever it might right. be. And I, I love that you say that because part of the reason why I chose that title, So Dramatic, is because growing up, you know, we'd hear that, oh, you're so dramatic, or don't be so dramatic was mm-hmm. the one, right? Mm-hmm. And part of why I call this So Dramatic is because I think it's a good thing, mm-hmm. and I love it. And so I want to tell people it's okay to be so dramatic. It's yeah. okay. Look how interesting this is. Look at this. This is what makes life interesting. These are great, interesting people who create amazing things. And have added beauty to our world, and let's celebrate that. Let's instead of like discouraging this being different and being dramatic, why not? Right. Why not? Let's right. have fun. And if it's what you have, why, why would that be any less cool than you know people want to start to talk about their four hundred and one k or their new Mercedes or whatever it might. If 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 being dramatic or being into that sort of thing is what you're into, why would that be lesser? I mean, right. it's it's still it's the fullest expression of of you. Again, right. like I tell my kids, live your truth. Yeah. It's not always pretty. It's not always when I get to the top you. of the class. Do you live your truth? And <laughs> yeah. and that's, I just think that's the way to go. Yeah. Well, that was Thomas Kincaid. So like what did you think? Did you like that? Were you were you mad at me at first? Were you kind of worried that? Well, you know, you were going to be bored out of your mind. At first, I thought it would it would cost us an opportunity to talk about cool stuff. <laughs> like, had you picked... I literally saw that in your eyes. Yeah. <laughs> happening. Right. Like like the the colors like fading. Like your eyes were getting sad. Yeah. Right, because you, you, know, like, you get fired up to say, well, if I could spend two hours talking about Bono yeah. or M. Night Shyamalan right. or Malcolm Gladwell yeah. or you know other people yeah. that, that I really like artistically. That's too easy, Steve. Yeah. That would have been too easy. Right. Yeah. And it's fun because it, you end up going different places. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. and 
so talk about indulging yourself in something that's creative. How often do you take two hours to just talk about this sort of thing mm-hmm. that other people be like, oh, it's so frivolous, or I got to change the wash, mm-hmm. or whatever you it's do? So it's, it's so dramatic. It's so dramatic. Badoom. Roll, right. roll credits. Yeah. So that yeah. So that's it. So I'm so glad you agreed to do this with me. Well, I just want to mention if anyone has wants to uh, contact me, it's at so dramatic podcast one at gmail.com. So who has so dramatic podcast without the one is what I'd like to know. Interesting. Right, <laughs> right? So you first like put that in and said, plate. this is not available. Yeah. yeah. So it's like a license plate, you know? So who's that? I got to find who that is and take them out. Right. Um, yes. Yeah, so it's so dramatic podcast one at gmail.com. If you want to contact me and, um, again, Steve, thank you so much for being here. And yeah, I just, thanks for allowing me to do it. It's fun. Oh, good. I just want to end with that. Uh, it's okay to be so dramatic. <laughs>